Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. I'm speaking today with Saqib Jalil, who describes himself as a human-centered designer, researcher, and product strategist. He works at Redify to foster innovation through design philosophies. He calls himself a thinker, writer, consultant, analyst, and strategist. Welcome to the show, Saqib. We're delighted to be speaking with you today. It's intriguing that, you know, as a designer, you've had such a large interest in healthcare. And I wondered where that interest came from. Can you talk us through your career to date? When I was very young, I once asked my mom that, why do some people smile and others don't? And she told me that, well, maybe they're sick or maybe they're not well. So I thought, all right, I think I want to be a doctor to make everybody smile. But when I was a teenager, then it turned out that I couldn't tolerate blood or even like, you know, when people are going through pain. So I chose the exact opposite things to study, like information technology and human factors. And then by the time when I was near my PhD, I was, again, writing the grants and I was trying to write a proposal about how to motivate people to engage in better exercise or to learn better. And well, fortunately, it turned out that the most intrigued professors who wanted, you know, to work with me, wanted me to apply this for health. And that's how I got into health once again, like even though I was afraid of blood and everything. So since then, so what happened was the first time that I worked with was uh, type 2 diabetes patients in northern Queensland. So it's a remote area in Queensland. And I was trying to see that what kind of in-home monitoring technologies patients use and why they don't use, what's the effects and all these things. So it was a lot about designing for them what fits in their lives and also what they see. So it was, and design in this sense was to design the experience. So it's for example, like breaking a complex thing into a simple thing through design. Or sometimes it was about the strategy, like how to put the right contents that intrigue them. And of course, on top of that, there was some visual elements, something that, you know, helps them to absorb information better. So that was the start. And then I just went on to do similar things with cancer and a bit of risky sexual behavior. So yeah, that's how it all started. I was very interested to hear that you were trying to motivate people to do more exercise. Right. I think it's an interesting issue because if you if you listen to some designers, they say it is not possible to motivate people. You can only trigger them to do something they're already motivated to do. So what was your experience of trying to motivate people to do more <laughs> exercise? I see. Actually, you're right in that sense. So that time, I did think that we could motivate people, but... Two of my research, it turned out that people were motivated, as the other designers said, except we don't understand their motivation because we... So what I found is they are motivated, but they don't have the right triggers or the right support system to carry on their motivation. So they understand why they have to do you know, the exercise. They know what's, what are the reasons for and it's always a personal reason that for somebody it may be to be fitter and get their heartbeat down, while for somebody it's to feel better and somebody to gain more strength. 
everybody knows what they want, but it was to do it. And so definitely, yeah, as you said, like the other designers, that was the case. Right. So in that particular project, you, you weren't necessarily able to motivate them in the sense that get them to need to want to do more exercise, but you found to maintain that motivation or to operationalize it, you had to change something. How did that happen? So it happened by first understanding them. And yeah, and obviously to change that, it was because even from your background, probably motivation, well, behavior is only a repeated action. So it was these repetitions that didn't happen. And sometimes I would say that because they're motivated, that would actually work against them because they would self-critic themselves so much of not doing so. So they needed a support system, which is not a human. Because a human may give up on you, but sometimes technologies will not give up on you because they have no emotions. So there's two sides of the story because as humans have the power to motivate you for like keep you, you know, engaged longer, but also a human may give up on you, but the technology won't. And the users knowing these are not humans and I'm not being judged, and this is a just a technology, but they would you know, build a relationship with that to go further. So I tried with um, type 2 diabetes patients. And in my study, unfortunately, they didn't find that the technology was helping them to exercise more. But it would, it was helping more for them for food. So reminding them of what to eat, what not to eat, but also the right amount of food. And they didn't want to you know, they didn't want to hear it from their family members. So, for example, yeah, because when people have a disease, we only think of it as a, you know, collection of symptoms, but it means something to their lives. So I was looking at that side, that what does living with type 2 diabetes mean for them? And how can technologies help to do some of the things that humans cannot do for them? Right. Right. This is intriguing because what you're saying is that the technologies were able to do something which that humans were not able to do. In other words, that they felt it more comfortable being constantly reminded of their habit by a machine than by somebody else for whatever reason. Right. Right. Yes. What do you think it was? Why do you think that it works in that way? Uh, from I can speak from my study and some of the studies that I reviewed, so it could be a partial answer, but I will go with go ahead with that. So what I think is because when there is a human involved and telling you, so I can even remember some quotes that saying that, oh my nurse uh, Susan told me that when she was checking my blood glucose that you know, oh, Albert, what did you eat today? Or what did you eat last week? Because your blood pressure is so high and your glucose has gone higher. So she said, even though I know Susan so long, I just don't want to hear from her telling me what I did or what's wrong with me, because in the end, I can eat what I can eat. And so it it doesn't help them. So I think it instead demotivates them, the feeling of being judged, feeling of you know, a human uh, judgment or a human critique. 
And there were family members, like somebody saying that, oh, my daughter told me that, dad, you cannot eat this. But in a, you know, in a meal settings where he saw his daughter after, you know, three months to have a family meal, he doesn't want to hear that from her. So they know that, and these family members, so I interviewed the family members, they have the best intention for the person. But however, there's something missing because the person is not taking it or it's not contributing to, you know, the person, you know, the patient actually being able to feel good and continue that. But when they hear from a technology, they know it's not a human, but they still get the information. They may shut it off sometimes, but they again will again connect with it because they don't feel included. So that's the thing I think I was, my conclusion is because they, if one member has type 2 diabetes, they don't feel included. They think they're, they have already, the disease has caused a burden on them to be separated from, you know, because it's a change in their lifestyles and they feel they're be being judged. They know they're being helped, but also it's not the same anymore. So at those moments, I think technologies can play a role if designed the right way. If you understand what they need, yes. So this is really interesting because what is the secret sauce? What does that technology look like? What can your, I presume you're talking about phones here. Uh, yes. Well, I did some, I didn't even go that far because I didn't get the funding to try that because they were under, you know, clinical trial protocols. I cannot interfere the treatment going on. So all I could do is uh, the possibility of getting a phone. So trying with paper prototypes. But I have seen and reviewed the other research of people from US that uh, message uh, food reminder two times a week works well. More than two times doesn't work well for type 2 diabetes. And then there's also situations, uh, for example, somebody could be, you know, we just cannot think that type 2 diabetes and treat everybody in the same, you know, the same funnel that, okay, this treatment works for everyone or this technology works for everyone. One size doesn't fit all. So it could be somebody having type 2 diabetes and still single and dating. And that was the case with one of my patients. And he didn't want a device or an app to be seen around until he knew he could share it with the people he was dating. So he didn't want to share that. While with some woman who has two children, for her, it was a different kind of change. Her lifestyle changed because sometimes she thought when she had uh, hypoglycemia, so that's lack of you know, blood sugar, she's thinking, is, is she fit enough to drive her son to the school that morning? And she would actually ask help. So for them, the lifestyle changed that, and her husband was ready to get a phone call sometimes to hear that, hey, I don't feel like driving because, yeah, I'm trembling. So for different people, it means different things. And as a result, the technology could. So for me, I, because I didn't come to a conclusion in what the technology looks like, but I came on what are the different kind of needs that technology could solve. So for example, what it means to their lives and which part that app or technology can play a role. Okay. Um, yeah. What do you feel is the most important thing that could help improve patient outcomes? You've talked there about technology. Are there yes. other, other things that you've discovered as a designer that could help? Yeah. 
yes, definitely. I think that if we look at a patient's experience or a group of patients' experience of, for example, that instead of saying that, you know, traditionally we have looked at very well at from the medicinal point of view that, okay, diabetes means this and this, in, these are the impacts. And in terms of providing the healthcare, we know when people get type 2 diabetes, this is the way we roll out this treatment. From the patient's perspective, I think what will work really good is a holistic end-to-end experience of the patients so that what does living with diabetes mean? I have also researched with cancer chemotherapy patients. So what does having a, the chemotherapy period mean for them? So that because it involves hospital visit, it involves lots of physical changes, which the doctors help them with. But then it also requires a caregiver. They may not be able to press the button in the right time on because of the high dose of medi- medication. They were trembling. Sometimes they couldn't download the app that the where I was working in California, we had an app to test to help them out with medication reminder and things. Sometimes they were not able to, you know, click those. So I think it's good. I would say that immediate, you know, something to improve the patient outcomes is to understand the end-to-end experience of what does chemotherapy mean from the patient's perspective. And also, because I think we understand the doctor's perspective and the healthcare perspective, but we are not doing so well in the patient's perspectives. So, yeah, so to, you know, involve um, design-led approaches or ethnography or, you know, different kind of research to understand this whole experience of a patient and tie it with how it relates to the service provided by the doctor and the healthcare system. That would be improve the patient outcomes. The challenging thing, I guess, from in that paradigm, and I'm not decrying it at all, is that in ethnographic studies, you have relatively small numbers of people and it's very situated in that particular person's experience as opposed to be more generalizable. So if you take an Aboriginal patient in Australia and you you cannot possibly compare them with a patient from another culture living in the even living in the same country, how do we get how do we how do we do this? Do we have to design solutions for individual groups of people rather than think in terms of you know generalizable, whatever that means, solutions? Well, that's a uh, traditional question in everything, right, with the quantitative and qualitative studies as well. Yes, so I think there's always some generalizable elements that we can take away so that we don't start from scratch and then, you know, make it into what more situational or contextual for individual groups. So, for example, like you say, like maybe a study in, uh, in California Southern California, Northern California is even different. So somebody living in San Francisco, they have a different lifestyle. And something that works for them doesn't work for somebody living in Sacramento or suburbs. So I think there are some general generalized things that we can take away already from existing research or even clinical trials so that we make sure that it doesn't break the treatment protocol. So taking that these are the things that's needed. But how do we deliver that is by understanding people, people living in the city versus people living in uh, the suburbs. Then people who are, you know, whose lifestyle is different, like some people are still working, some people not working, stay ho- stay at home moms, priorities are different. But if we want great 
their patient outcomes, we can do that. And we can do that not only with ethnography. I mean, that could be a start, but we can do with IoT devices or <laughs> because, I mean, we already have lots of opportunities to understand human behavior through so many quantitative data as well. The reason I'm intrigued by this is that, you know, coming from the background of family medicine, which is my speciality, you often hear this, that we, we set standards for general practice and we say you need to deliver so many, so, such and such a percentage of people need to have been told stop smoking or lose weight or whatever else. And yeah. often it is not contextually appropriate that a 60% in one population is an astonishingly good result compared to 90% in another population. And what you're suggesting, I think, is that we need approaches that allow that small community to successfully deploy innovations which are appropriate for their context, appropriate for the communities and cultures in which they live. Right, exactly. And yeah, I can add also something that, so in my uh, one in during the PhD part of my research, I also tried to show that, you know, while there's a big clinical trial going on, how we can, you know, without doubling the effort and without, you know, interfering with the clinical trial, we can just take a sample of patients and do some ethnographic study quickly. So it complements the clinical trial research because clinical trials often, you know, they look at the baseline and the end goals and the intervention group, the control group, and what happened throughout. But whenever there's a technology involved, people do build relations with the technology, they interact. So it's clinical trial, while it gives the evidence on the effectiveness of the treatment, it cannot tell all the tiny interactions that could be changed that could actually, you know, trigger and further contribute to the outcomes. So these things are diluted. Sometimes we know that this group improved, but this didn't. And this didn't, but why? We don't know. Because, and without doing extra cost, like if we can just bring in, you know, some human-centered design researchers or just like a third-party researcher who could just come in and do it for, maybe they can look at several touch points, like three months, six months, nine months, for two days, in a couple of people just to see what are some generalizable attributes and find the commonalities. And then we can try and you know, transfer them to a different trial and see. Yeah. yeah. So what you're saying is that we would learn just as much from a trial that didn't work for a particular subset of the exactly. population uh, as a trial that worked for everybody else. And the question is, right. why not? And it may well right. be that the why not gives you a, an in more interesting answer. Yes. I think so. And then, you know, it's like so much more use of data. Just with a little bit of effort, we get so much more. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the most exciting thing on the horizon uh, that you will, that you think will make a difference to outcomes? I really think that, so I was particularly interested in, you know, persuasive design. So that is to understand people and their intentions, their motivations, their ability now. And to keep them engaged so that they achieve a goal. So I think for healthcare, persuasive systems, I mean, per health is actually the most, the only area that can use the most of persuasive systems. Because at the moment it's commerce, you know, e-commerce is using and fintechs are using, they try to make people spend more and they try to make, you know, 
people addicted more to Facebook. But can we not do the opposite? Can we make people be less addicted to technologies and just go and do some more exercise and then come back? Definitely th- that can be done and it's right there, but except nobody's doing it. So what, you, what, what, what by persuasive design, you're talking about nudging or what's called yes, nudging. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think, yeah, in behav- behavioral economics, it's called nudging. Yes. So yeah, we, it's the same thing. Yeah. We call it trigger, except in this case, yeah, the nudging, we also think of how to operationalize that nudging. Like, you know, that this nudge that we show that, because most of the time nudging is mostly showing or creating a trigger, but yeah, it's the same thing, but except we think of it more like how that nudging will look like over three months or how many times a day, in what times for this individual and what times for this individual and see reaction on the time. Yeah, so it's, it's the nudging, but it's operationalizing the nudging with the details interactions. And yeah, I'm excited that I think that could be the very next step. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's a very, very delicious idea. And I'm wondering whether you have an example of something like this? Well, a concrete example, I can tell you where it didn't work, and where, but that's more from my peer review, like with, from my peers, because I, I didn't do those studies. But I was, so for example, um, like nudging or persuasive technology, it doesn't work for smoking. They tried it. So they tried it for smoking, it doesn't work because what happens is first because smoking is not only a behavioral need or a, it's also a, it's something with the body it's a, it's a physiological need because they have been addicted to the nicotine so we are thinking it's probably that because it's not a behavior itself it's the craving for that substance the nicotine so it's not so many of the studies even though it worked first first one month or sometimes seven days and it doesn't work and it had a negative result. Like people actually got annoyed with this nudging for smoking. And also, just to let you know, like currently I think in health, the only thing that we use is always to make people scared by showing <laughs> if you don't do this, this is what happens. Like for example, I was doing some research, it's, it hasn't been finished. So it's about preventing risky sexual behavior. So people know in Africa and in other continents, Asia, like Thailand and everywhere, what else? Yeah, those are the two places I mainly looked at. People know what's the consequences. It's not that they don't know. So stop trying to do that anymore. It's that they know they have to change, but what can we do to make that change? So for example, there was... So I reviewed lots of apps, randomly downloading for anything that's about preventing risky sexual behavior. And I saw that all of them use the same strategy that is to scare you that, oh, if you don't use this, then you get this. If you don't do this, you get this. You should do your blood checkup. If you have this many partners, this time. So it's good and it's informing them, but that's just information. It's not really helping them to change the behavior. But then there was another app which was not exactly for sexual behavior but that was to count an action it's called nomi n-o-m-i-e and i think that was like one step ahead because it actually helped you like every time you drank water you just tap once so you in the end by the end of the day you actually saw how much water you drank so at the same time like every time you had a risky sexual encounter you tap 
and by the end you see or there was yes so then it could have been programmed also that every time you want to do a risky sexual encounter because it happens but can you stop and just press tap for you know a couple of seconds and then when people try to do that then they would actually change their mind because they tapped it but then i mean it wasn't a study it was more you know exploring the apps and just seeing because because there was another app for but that was not really for risky sexual behavior that was for sexual behavior to explore so it's like if somebody is pushing another person off their limit they can tap so every time just before they engage with somebody they tap on it and that's the review it and i was looking at secondary data that what people like users put as a review and it looked good and i could actually think that okay this actually looks like we can actually implement and we should test this more that does it work for that okay it's because it's not that people don't know but what can we can we create a you know another step that makes them think or gives another window of period that they can change their mind so it sounds like persuasive design has really got you fired up yes. in your career <laughs> so yes. perhaps you know in summary what what is your what is your current area of interest where do you where do you think it's got the most power and and where are you investing your energies currently i'm also working full time as a design consultant in a consultancy company we are now known as telstra purple so it is the software side of telstra where we think of the people and design for them as a consultant i just cannot focus on only health so it just depends on the client somebody can have a financial problem somebody can have an onboarding issue somebody can have a safety health and safety issue at a construction site but no matter what i see that persuasive system has a little bit of role in each of them because if we are designing and if we know the intent of the design that is if we are you know helping people to create a more engaging e-learning experience and if we know that okay the company wants this and the users want them that too because they want to learn so knowing that there's no nothing unethical there we can put some persuasive strategies to actually motivate those users to learn more so it can be used everywhere i think so education in health and safety in construction sites some health there's some health clients but not really as deep usually they only want a part of the solution yeah that's the uh, limitation of consultancy like you're in and out you go you give the advice and then you're out so that's how i what where i'm doing but on my side research i am still carrying on that review of the risky sexual behavior app and i'm also working with a few colleagues of mine on exer game so it's like exercise and gaming with virtual reality but that's on the side but it's really hard to commit and you know carry the work forward when you're working full time but that's where i am so keep jilil it's been an honor speaking with you it sounds like you've got some amazing ideas and insights and particularly the lit- the literature re- reviews that you've done have really uh, helped us to reframe this whole question of changing behavior and what i really liked about what you said was that you know even poor results in the in large trials 
if investigated properly, could give us some invaluable lessons. So thank you very much. You're welcome. It's really good to uh, talk to you and also hear the podcasts of the rest of the people. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.